Welcome to Never Again Is Now, a podcast about anti-Semitism. 73 years after the Nazi regime, Germany has visible far right again. In today's episode, we will take a closer look at this movement and the threat it may pose to Jews in Germany. I'm Evelyn Marcus, and in addition to being a psychologist, I'm featured in the documentary about anti-Semitism, Never Again Is Now. I am a Dutch Jew and a daughter of Holocaust survivors. In 2006, I emigrated to the United States because of the rising anti-Semitism in Europe. I am Phyllis Zembler-Miller. I am the founder of the free nonfiction Holocaust theater project, thenedgeofthewedge.com. I grew up in the town of Elgin, Illinois, a small Western town in which the Jewish community, one synagogue, did not have uh, Holocaust survivors, our parents and grandparents had come at the turn of the, the previous, at the 20th century to escape the czar and other programs. And yet in September, 1970, only 25 years after the end of World War II and the Holocaust, my US Army officer husband and I found ourselves stationed in Munich, Germany, and this save changed our lives forever. Dr. Remco Lehmhaus is the director of the American Jewish Committee in Berlin. <clears throat> His areas of focus include contemporary anti-Semitism, Islamism, and security policy. He's also committed to strengthening the transatlantic relationship, as well as German-Israeli relations. Remco Lehmhaus studied political and oriental studies at the Philips University of Marburg and the University of Berkeley, California. Remco, it's great to have you on our show. Welcome. And thank you for coming on. Well, thank you both for hosting me. Hi, Phyllis. Uh, hi. hi, Evelyn. And a special shout out to Evelyn for pronouncing my uh, <laughs> surname uh, very precise. Um, uh, that doesn't happen often to me. <laughs> that's, that's the European connection. Anyway, today I get to ask the first question, which is, what is your personal connection to the work you do at AJC in Berlin? So I I was an intern um, at the AJC Berlin office in 2007 while I was still uh, studying. And um, so that, I guess, indicates that I was interested in the issues that AJC, you know, dealt back, you know, back then with. And, you know, we're still sadly dealing with. Um, but I'm not Jewish, so um, I don't have a, in that sense, personal connection to to the work that I do. But um, yeah, I again, I was an intern, and um, when I moved to Berlin around ten years ago, I uh, started working part time at the office uh, while I was writing my PhD, uh, which I wrote. Uh, on the German Foreign Office and its relationship to Israel between the Six-Day War and Camp David. And, well, since then, I'm uh, proudly working for, for AJC. Why were you an intern when you were still studying? What led you to the walk in the door in the first place? Well, it was a... a, a I mean, it started off with an interest in, in German history um, even before I went to university, um, and especially an interest into the history of the Third Reich, the history of the Shoah. And um, when I started my... Uh, when I started at the university, 
I uh, also got interested into the Middle East. So, I mean, this was a time um, around uh, the start of the Second Intifada and uh, September, uh, so 9-11. And um, it was, you know, at this point that when you, you know, looked at Islamist propaganda, you could see sort of echoes of, you know, when you look at anti-Semitism, for example, that it is, you know, not so different from um, from National Socialist anti-Semitism or the anti-Semitism in the Third Reich. So, and somehow these topics sort of merged for me together at that point. And that's why I then got interested in the Middle East and Israel. And uh, that then ultimately let me, you know, or, you know, I applied for an, for an internship at, at the AJC office in Berlin. It's it's uh, it's amazing that you recognized the 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 similarity the totalitarianism right of of Islamism and and Nazism um, is that correct that that's what you what you saw yeah ex yeah, yeah exactly so that's yeah. so it, it's sort of um most mostly it's hard to explain to people who are sort of not familiar with the topics when I say you know that that you know I you know I you know, because I was interested in the, you know, in German history, as I said, before I went to university as a student um, and uh, also uh, had, you know, a lot of events and met a lot of survivors back then. I mean, this is now 20 years ago or more. So um, there were, you know, more survivors that, you know, came to our school and or, you know, there were in other settings where we had events with them. So, um, yeah, and Again, and then, then I saw the parallels sort of between these two ideologies and uh, and uh, also then, you know, the and, and that was also then the link to, to Israel and why Israel is necessary and why, you know, that's a necessity for a Jewish state. And um, so, yeah, that's sort of the <laughs> how it merged together in my head. <clears throat> I understand. So. In December, it was world news that thousands of German police officers and special forces were involved in stopping a far-right extremist plot to violently overthrow the German government. Um, which movement was behind this plot? So the arrested people or, you know, the suspects, not everyone was arrested. There were about 25 people who were arrested and are some of them are still in custody. Um, they belong to the so-called Reichsbürger movement, which you can loosely translate as uh, citizens of the Reich. Um, as the name indicates, they are supporters of the German monarchy that ceased to exist in 1918. And they simultaneously don't believe in the existence of the Federal Republic of Germany. Um, and for example, they claim that there was never a peace treaty after the Second World War, that Germany is still an occupied country. And uh, some of them also think that Germany is a company and uh, therefore they, they don't accept the Federal Republic and the laws of the Federal Republic. And some of them even proclaim their own sort of states on their private property, give out passports or, um, you know, uh, uh, or even their own currencies, uh, uh, some of them. And they, in some cases, also refuse to pay taxes and in the past have attacked employees of the state 
um, and uh, especially police officers. And um, in the most recent raid, um, the alleged, uh, you know, they allegedly, according to the um, uh, to the judge who signed off on it, they plan to overthrow the um, federal government and reinstate the monarchy. And among those arrested was a former member of parliament from the far right alternative for Germany party, um, a retired uh, German special forces soldier, um, as well as an opera singer and um, a gourmet chef. And so a rather, you know, rather weird ragtag band of, you know, people and I know that all sounds absurd, um, the ideology and, you know, the set of people, but um, we at AGC, you know, constantly highlight the fact that even though, you know, when you look at this, sometimes you think, oh, this is so strange, you know, it's almost funny, you know, what they believe in, that they are still, in fact, dangerous, especially given the fact that um, a lot of them legally own firearms and have used them in the past. Um, for example, in southern Germany in 2016, there was a case um, when a, a follower of this Reichsburger movement uh, shot a police officer when the police tried to confiscate his weapons. Um, uh, so they are, they are dangerous. Um, but I mean, it's needless to say, obviously, they wouldn't have overthrown the government. Um, and it, it was a discussion here in Germany that then some people sort of belittle it and said, like, well, you know, these 50 people, they would have never overthrown the government. I mean, of course, they would have never overthrown the government. But that doesn't diminish the fact that they are dangerous, because given their ideology, uh, given their access to weapon and their affinity to weapons, um, it is very concerning that even if they don't overthrow the government, they are still able, you know, to commit terror attacks. And um, if you look, for example, even though both of them were not exactly follower of, of this ideology, but if you look at the terror attack um, in Halle against uh, where, you know, the right wing terror attack against uh, uh, synagogue on yes. Yom Kippur um, and the racist mass shooting in uh, Hanau uh, a year late or a few months later, these people also had at least like parts of, of you know, or were like, you know, part of this ideology also played into their, you know, motives for their, for their terror attacks. So that is why, you know, we stress that uh, don't diminish it, don't laugh it off, take this seriously. And, um, and obviously, given that um, these that they're right-wing extremists, anti-Semitism is at the core of their beliefs, and so the Jewish community is especially at risk. Jewish, you know, Jewish community, Jewish institution are especially at risk from these people. So they they are also anti-Semitic, is what you say? Absolutely, absolutely. That is that is at the core of their um, belief system with all the uh, conspiracy theories that you could see all over, you know, the extreme right, you know, the whole Western world. So, um, uh, you know, maybe we'll, we'll you know, go into that later yeah. on and what exactly those beliefs are. Yes. Um, Phyllis? Yes. So 
we know the far right movements are growing in Germany, but what is the reason for this? Can you explain this to our audience? So I guess one reason is the polarization of society and the polarization that we see all over the Western worlds and in all democracies. Um, and I guess, you know, your listeners also know this from the US um, that um, this polarization radicalizes people. And this is also something interesting when you look at this Reichsburger movement. These are sometimes people that, you know, for decades have lived a very normal life. And all of a sudden, you know, in the span of six months or so, they are you know, deeply radicalized, deeply anti-Semitic, deeply, you know, believing in this conspiracy theories. And um, so this polarization, and in Germany, this polarization is especially an issue when we talk about the far right, because it began with the arrival of the uh, mostly refugees from the Middle East, mostly Syria in 2015, and the debates about immigration, integration. And so, and this was sort of, you know, in, in the German context, um, you know, it, it is a very vital, you know, point of this friction society and this polar polarization um, in, 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 the, in Germany. And how large would you say or of the entire German population, what percentage do you think really believes in these, you know, who, who, how big is the threat? So if we look at the, um, you know, the, the general population, we see very consistently, and we put out a, a, survey, a survey last year in May, um, uh, so Anti-Semitic beliefs in Germany are shared by, again, it depends on, you know, the, you know, what questions are, you know, the setting uh, of the study, it's qualitative, qualitative, but somewhere between 25 and 35% of Germans um, hold anti-Semitic belief. That doesn't mean that they have a, you know, closed anti-Semitic mindset. It just means that, you know, they agree, you know, with one or two anti-Semitic tropes. So, we have a we have a huge problem with anti-Semitism in mainstream society, and uh, of course the fringes and you know we're talking about the right wing um, in this case. Um, again, you know they are obviously very deeply anti anti-Semitic. What age does Holocaust education begin in Germany? That's. Um, Pretty hard to tell because um, since Germany is a, a federal state like the U.S., um, so education policy lies with the state. So it depends in which state you are living that, um, you know, when this education starts. But I would say around the age of 13 or 14, um, I think is the first time that people or, or you know, children are introduced into the history of the Third Reich and the Holocaust. But it is mandated, even though it's at different ages. Is that correct? Yes, it, it, it is on every curriculum in every state in in Germany. Um, there's not sort of formal mandate, but it is on every curriculum. And I don't know of a state where this is not part of the uh, curriculum um, uh, of every of every school. So back to the, the far right. Um, and we haven't really uh, defined what we call right or what and what we call far right or what we call extreme right. Um, 
But what you're saying is the part of the right and the right that holds anti-Semitic beliefs in Germany is substantial. Is that correct? Did I understand that well? Yes. Okay. Um, what are the beliefs of these people um, in Germany about Jews? Um, so here I would sort of uh, differentiate between the old school neo-Nazi right-wing extremist and what I would call the modern right and the modern uh, new right extremist. Um, and I'll explain um, the the difference. Um, so when you look at, uh, for example, um, there are parties like um, that is actually called the right or other, um, you know, small parties, um, they don't play a role in an election. But um, we also have, you know, beside these, um, you know, very openly right-wing extremist parties, there are also neo-Nazi organization in, you know, very different shapes or forms. And I, and I would call these sort of the, the old right-wing extremists because they openly um uh, they openly uh, uh, you know see themselves as sort of in the tradition of the you know national socialism they are very openly anti-semitic um although i have to say you know for especially listeners in the us um for example it is a crime in germany to deny the holocaust so there there are certain limits on what they can say but to the extent that it's legal, they are very openly anti-Semitic and it is very easy to spot. Now, when I look at what I would call the, the new right um, or the you know more modernized um, uh, version of right-wing extremism, it is a bit more complicated. And if I take, for example, um, the alternative for Germany, the party that I've mentioned before, who's also in the Bundestag um, in the German parliament, um, that is more complicated for, because, for example, the the alternative for Germany, like other right-wing populist parties in, in Europe, they portray themselves as um, staunch supporters of Israel and the best French, friends of the Jewish community. Um, but if you scratch at the surface, it is very clear that anti-Semitism is also at the core of their ideology, even though they try to camouflage it and they try to hide it. Um, so they talk about, for example, uh, you know, a globalist financial elite that is running the world. Um, so obviously they don't say Jews, but um, everyone understands, you know, the trope and you know what they mean by that. There are also um, sort of, you know, uh, George Soros is a huge issue. So the Jewish philanthropist, um, uh, you know, th that's a huge issue for them, you know, accusing him of uh, um, flooding Europe and Germany with migrants as a sort of sinistria plan of um, replacing the native German uh, population. And um, so these are more, again, more camouflaged, more, you know, they try to to hide their anti-Semitism, but it's still at their, you know, at the center of their beliefs, and um, they are, and they're also, in my opinion, uh, you know, two reason why that is, why they are not openly anti-Semitic. 
Um, and I think it's mere it's mere tactics. So first of all, being openly anti-Semitic, you know, still would you know shy away or scare away you know a certain you know percentage of the electorate, or would scare away right-wing conservative voters who might agree on other issues. But you know, again, for for a lot of people, you know, openly anti-Semitism would would be would be a red line, even though if they would, you know, agree with other, you know, of the main issues of the of the party. And also, um, you know, when they talk about anti-Semitism, they only talk about anti-Semitism emanating from the Muslim community and using it as a tool for the racist and anti-refugee, anti-immigrant propaganda. So that's where I would say is a distinction. Yeah, if 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 I look at the Netherlands, which I know um, better, much better than Germany, mm-hmm. um, I know of um, two um, populist parties. Um, there, there are a few very small ones uh, in addition to that now, but the the two bigger ones, one has issues with anti-Semitism internally, and the other one has not at all. Um, So the picture I have is, um, yes, there is anti-Semitism at the far right, but not everybody, not every party in Europe in that corner has anti-Semitism obviously there. And not not every person identifying with that part, with those parties is by definition anti-Semitic. But you will find anti-Semitism at the far right, and and you're saying it's substantial at the far right in Germany. What yes, I want to clarify is the Bundestag is a German parliament. How many seats does the Alternative for Germany have? I remember when they got enough seats to have offices throughout all your states. I was horrified because, as I told yeah. you earlier, I had seen their posters in 2016 in Berlin where they were basically nothing. And suddenly they got how many seats? What's the percentage of the parliament? So they now currently have 78 seats out of, um, oh, you got me here, uh, around 600, I guess close to 700 um, uh, seats that the German parliament has overall. Um, uh, and 78 seats is a lot. As 78 is a lot, yes. As we can, um, you'll correct me on the exact number. Hitler's party won when he was installed in on January 30th, 1933, with less 30-something percent of the German parliament at that time. So I just want to remind our viewers here in America that 78 people seats can make a big difference. Yes, yes. but again, as I said, uh, not all of those pe- seats will have anti-Semitic beliefs. Um, at least in Holland, that would be the case. Is that the same in in Germany? Uh, well, I, I mean, I would say we have seen a radicalization of the alternative for Germany over the past years. I would, I would say, five years ago, I would have agreed that there were still, I would say, traditionally, you know, right of center or more right of center conservatives. But um, over the past years, we have seen a steady and increasingly 
you know, radicalization of the party, especially in Eastern Germany, um, where um, there are people heading the party in state legislators and um, or head, uh, head of the party in certain states who are clearly right-wing extremists. So I, I'm at a point where I would say that people who are still sort of member of the parliament in Germany for the alternative for Germany, um, they are right-wing extremists. Although I don't know every single person I have, uh, obviously I don't know, and we as AJC don't interact with them, we don't talk to them. So, um, but um, again, given how this party is radicalized, um, it begs the question, you know, if people see that and are a member of the party and, you know, if, you know, are still fine with that, um, then, you know, <laughs> I, I would say, uh, you know, then they should live with the, you know, accusations that they are a member of a, you know, far-right or far-right extremist party. Is this um, the, the AfD and, 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 and the smaller uh, parties at the right um, and, and movements, not always parties, the movements, uh, including the AfD, what are their beliefs about democracy? Well, I mean, they are um, as I guess it's the same, you know, in the in the U.S. or you know across the Western world or you know Western Europe or in Europe in general, they are anti-democratic by nature. Um, uh, they obviously want to abolish um, uh, democracy because they don't believe in the values and the procedures and the institutions of liberal democracy. Um, they clearly reject uh, human rights and you know universal human rights and the idea that all people are are equal. Um, and as everywhere they are, as we have already talked about, they are anti-Semitic, um, they are racist, they are sexist, they are homophobic. Um, they're against uh, migrate immigration, and um, so I guess there's, in that sense, nothing unusual about the German far right that you wouldn't find, for example, in the in the U.S. on the far right or in you know comparable or similar movements or parties. It, so, so I it's it 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 is a uh, a part of populism. Then it's not it's not all of populism because what you just. The, the categories of hatred you just mentioned are not in all populist, in the whole populist movement, but parts of it do have these belief, beliefs. And that, that's the same in Germany? Or would you say all of the populism in Germany has all these racist beliefs? Uh, I mean... I obviously there's also a populism on the left um uh, so populism isn't confined to the mm. right um but if we if we talk about um populism populist movements um on the right um i would definitely say this is part of their um ideology and core beliefs and to what extent i mean then you have to really look at you know case by case but um uh, as a as a general rule, I would say this applies to right-wing populism in Germany and to sort of every stream of right-wing populism in, in Germany. Why is it seems to be much stronger in East Germany? Is that a leftover from being under Soviet occupation for so long that, that but 
That's my opinion, but I don't see quite how that A turned to B. Do you see what I'm asking? Mm, well, that's a that's a very hard question, uh, to be honest, because um, there are obviously a lot of factors um, about, uh, you know, there is, um, and this is not a uh, excuse and not meant as an excuse. So I'm just talking, you know, analytically and um, uh, obviously, you know, it, it is a part of Germany that is economically not very well off. Um, uh, the uh, GDR was more or less, you know, encircled in an island. So there weren't um, a, a lot of foreigners, immigrants. Um, there were some, you know, immigrants or working immigrants from other socialist countries, but they were also confined to, uh, you know, to certain spaces where they lived. So there wasn't much of an interaction with um, uh, with uh, foreigners, Um and uh, so these are, you know, some of some of the reasons why. And after, you know, um, after the reunification, uh, West German neo-Nazis, um, uh, you know, very deliberately and very strategically um, sort of moved to the eastern part of um, uh, of Germany and established uh, sort of footholds in different parts and different cities. Um, and there was always also a neo-Nazi scene in the GDR, which, of course, the GDR never, you know, admitted because by definition, the GDR was an anti-fascist state. So right. there couldn't be any any neo-Nazis. And um, and I guess there's also some, you know, again, all of this isn't, you know, really, you know, explaining the whole, you know, phenomenon. But um, during the GDR, being a neo-Nazi was again, given that the GDR defined itself as a anti-fascist country, uh, you know, the most radical opposition that you could have against the state. And um, so I, I would say these are, uh, again, not all the factors and not all the, you know, right. it, it, is a, it is a huge, huge discussion. But uh, your observation is right that the uh, right is much stronger in, in Eastern Germany, especially when you look at the alternative for Germany, um, they are in some in some states. Um, uh, they are at this point polling as the strongest party. If there would be a um, election on Sunday, so it is it is very troubling. So should the German government do more about these alt right movements? Of course, the the government um, could could always do more but i'm i'm skeptical of um always looking to the state to or you know or government institution to solve this problem i mean this ultimately you know mainstream society has to has to fight this problem and has to take on this problem um but of course there are always things that the state and um government institutions could do for example um uh, as I said, these Reichsburger movement, um, a lot of these people uh, legally own weapons. And um, just for the US listeners, um, we already have very, very strict gun laws in Germany. But I think you could still, uh, um, you know, tighten these laws and, uh, you know, make them even uh, uh, harsher. For example, if 
someone um you know is uh, you know authorities are aware of extremist views and you know extremist views are documented that even though they are legally um uh, owning these firearms that they are taken away from them um obviously in a you know due process manner right. but um uh, this is something that that needs to be done and that's also something that is discussed uh at at the moment in germany and in the ministry of interior because they they understand that this combination of um you know these extremist beliefs plus you know access to weapons uh obviously is a is a problem so what can regular german citizens and the jewish community do to help uh block what's what's growing in germany in terms of the alt-right I mean, as I said, and that is, you know, that is maybe not a very convincing, you know, or very uh, interesting answer. It is to speak up, to uh, address this issue, and uh, and first and foremost, speak up when it happens. Uh, you know, when you are with you know members of your family, or you know, at the workplace, or you know, in social settings, and it doesn't have to be a you know, grand organization or anything, but, you know, to be to be aware of these issues and to be aware that this is an issue. And if you hear something anti-Semitic, if you hear something racist, that you speak up and and call it out. And um, and I wouldn't say that, so again, I, I guess I wouldn't say that the Jewish community per se has a particular role to play. I mean, obviously they are, you know, most likely the victims of, of you know, these right-wing extremists, but, um, and obviously, you know, are interested and, you know, are, are fighting um, against uh, right-wing extremism. But I would say the, you know, the main burden is on mainstream society. And I mean, in the past, for example, um, all major Jewish institutions and organization, for example, um, have called out the AFD and have said, this is not a, uh, you know, this is a right-wing party, and have denounced um, uh, denounced uh, uh, their ideology and their support um, that you know they have voiced for the Jewish community, their so-called support. So this is something that has happened uh, a few times over the past years. That all you know, all major and all relevant Jewish organizations, institutions came together and denounced the alternative for Germany. And I guess it goes without saying that everything further to the right, you know, also is, uh, you know. Evelyn? Not, not acceptable. Um, do far-right extremist groups, um, you know, who would, who would use violence in Germany, have, do they have links with like-minded groups outside Germany? Um, yes. Um, so um one example um so this is again not not a you know strict organization but during the um covid protest that we had in germany so the protest against the measures that the state you know uh, it took to spread uh, to stop the spread of the virus um and i guess you've seen this also in the us and then these anti-vaxxer protests um interestingly qnn was and uh, this, you know, belief system of QAnon was picked up very, very soon after it emerged in the U.S. and in no other Western European country had 
QN in such a you know resonance as in Germany, for example. So you could see that people radicalize over the over the internet, even though maybe there are no personal ties at this point. And and there's another example of the so-called Atomwaffen division, so atomic weapon division, um, and that is also something that emanated from the U.S., but they also um, had uh, followers um, here, and that's an extremely dangerous, extremely violent, and again, you know, also with access to weapons. And we could also see just within Europe that um, right-wing extremists um, cooperate, that they cross borders. Um, of course, when you when you are a European citizen and you are in the European Union, you can just travel back and forth in every European country without being uh, checked at any border. And so most visibly, we see this at demonstrations. Um, for example, you know, there are sometimes, you know, important demonstrations once a year in Poland, where you see a lot of German neo-Nazis, similar things in Hungary. In February, we um, there's always a huge neo-Nazi demonstration, for example, in Dresden, commemorating the bombing of the city uh, during the Second World War. There, there you can then see right-wing extremists from other European countries. So, of course, there's a there's a there is a huge degree of of cooperation. We talked about just a few minutes ago about what listeners can do at the individual level. Do you have any additional information? that you would like to share with people about that and this is also your chance for last word well i would say um i i don't want to <laughs> i don't want to make this an advertisement uh, about ajc but we compiled a um a sort of brochure um with anti-semitic tropes um uh, that you can download and look into and uh, where it is explained um what this means and this codes and you know decoding these um uh, these anti-Semitic stereotypes. So, you know, educa educate yourself. Um, um, listen listen to what, you know, the victims have to say, because this is also often, you know, overlooked that these debates are then, you know, about these issues without including the, the victims and the perspective of the victims. And this is something that, I mean, it should, you know, go without saying, but um, it doesn't often, and uh, you know, take this, take this seriously, and don't and don't brush it off. Um, because when we talk about anti-Semitism, um, and I'm here talking about Germany, but I guess it also applies for other countries. Not every anti-Semitic incident is a crime. So, um, uh, so we also have to deal. You know, there's also a huge deal, uh, a huge level and amount of anti-Semitism everyday anti-Semitism that doesn't meet the threshold of a crime, but that still, you know, makes life hard. And um, this is something we need to talk more about. And luckily in Germany, we have organizations who track these incidents now so that we have a better understanding of that. And uh, so just to be, you know, just to have an awareness of the fact that anti-Semitism doesn't start with a crime or with a physical assault, but that it starts earlier and that it uh, needs to be called out and that people shouldn't be shy calling it out. And I guess that's something that that everyone can do. Yes, yes. The claims conference slogan, it starts with words or it started with words, I think, is really important. 
We don't yeah, have to absolutely. wait. That's why my play Thin Edge of the Wedge, it's a British expression. It means the wedge gets so large, it's too hard to turn back. So we don't, we must not wait till it's a crime. We have to start sooner. And I want to especially thank you. At this point, we always thank our guests, but we threw you some hardballs. I mean, you were <laughs> fabulous because this is <laughs> such a complicated and multi-leveled uh, conversation. And in, you know, 30 to 40 minutes, we didn't give you a lot of time, but you you were fabulous. And, and I think, <laughs> really, and I think our listeners, for those of you who have not yet seen Evelyn's documentary, Never Again Is Now, I urge you to see it. It, it fills in a lot of some of the stuff we're talking about today. You can see it on Amazon or YouTube. You can read more about my play at thinedgeofthewedge.com. And as I close, we close every session saying, without putting yourself in physical harm, please speak up against all anti-Semitism and all hate. 